was the, my second year there, 2007, and a speaker by the name of Barack Obama was coming to the Google campus. There was no chance of me getting in if I had waited in line. So I actually snuck around back and the Secret Service was blocking the, the entrances. I, I used my best poker face and I told the Secret Service, uh, hey, actually I have a meeting in that room and I pointed to a room kind of far in the distance and the you know, Secret Service who didn't really know how things were laid out said, all right, go ahead, go ahead. So I snuck past him and, uh, and Barack Obama gave an hour long talk that, that really changed my life. You could say that Dan Soroka's path to success started out with a lie. It was a lie that ended up with him being director of analytics for the Obama 2008 campaign. And it was working on that campaign that gave him the idea for Optimizely, the A-B testing powerhouse Dan co-founded, growing it to $120 million in revenue and 450 employees. This is Secret Leaders and I'm Dan Murray-Serta. Dan Soroka is now the CEO of Rewind AI, a company he started in 2020 which records all your digital experiences and makes them useful to you through integrated AI systems. I'm a user, so everything I do on my laptop is recorded, even this introduction. I get prompts asking if I want to sum up of what's been going on, and after this recording, I'll have a long list of my producer's criticisms or uh, uh, feedback sorry, of me as a host. I've got to say, I think it's a great product, and how Dan started it and what he's doing to grow it is fascinating. It's definitely worth your attention. He wants to build the first multi-billion dollar public company with 50 people or fewer, and his unorthodox approach to fundraising has seen him turn down investment that would have already valued them as a unicorn. What Dan has learned about following your own path, not listening to others, is clear throughout his career. And like me, that career started when he got his first job at 13. I was the assistant system administrator uh, for the uh, computer science lab at Stanford where my mom worked. Uh, and uh, the reason they hired me was the, uh, the actual system administrator uh, didn't know much about Windows or Mac machines, which were uh, what everyone wanted to use. He was much more of a Unix guy. And so I would be the kid that would help Stanford computer science professors and their PhD students get their Macs and Windows machines uh, uh, running as as desired. Got it. Okay, so you were that guy who basically was telling people to turn their computer off and on again. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I learned the trick of turning it off and on again uh, at an early age. Uh, one of the formative experiences I had was my mom's uh, boss was a professor at computer science, and he wanted to upgrade his his machine at home. And uh, since we had the same one at our house, we had already previously upgraded it to a Sound Blaster 16 and what was new at the time, uh, a CD-ROM drive. Uh, this really dates me. Uh, so we upgraded our machine to include those. Uh, you know, went to Fry's Electronics, bought them and sold them myself. And then he thought, boy, I would really love a CD-ROM drive and a Sound Blaster 16. So I installed that for him. And I remember thinking to myself as a 13-year-old, like, wow, I must be really good if like I can do something a Stanford computer science professor can't do. Uh, so that gave me an early sense of, uh, of confidence when it comes to computers. Yeah, I'm not really surprised. Like, what about your interest in computer science? Like, How did that continue for you? So I've always been excited about computers. I think I trace it back to some early experiences like that. And in elementary school, you know, we'd always we'd had one computer for each class. And for some reason, I was the guy that would try to fix it or get it set up or if the teacher couldn't get it working. Um, we used uh, Logo was our, one of our first 
uh, computer programming games uh, back uh, in elementary school. In middle school, I got really, uh, in seventh grade, I took a computer programming class. I was really lucky that my school had that. That was all in HyperCard, uh, which was super exciting. And then got really into mushes and MUDs. Mushes are multi-user simulated environments uh, and MUDs are multi-user dungeons. These are like text-based uh, you know, equivalents of what is kind of like World of Warcraft, I guess. So that got me, and that also had a kind of programming component to it. Um, so yeah, I've always been really excited and passionate about computing, about programming. Um, got into Lisp really early on, read uh, Paul Graham's uh, Lisp book, and that's what got me excited about Y Combinator. And um, yeah, that's, it's, I've always been excited about computers. And you go to university? Yeah, I went, uh, I went to Stanford, studied computer science at Stanford. Of course. Got a fellow in the right. I mean, I guess if you grow up in Palo Alto and you don't go to Stanford, it's a bit insulting, right? Um, so that's got to be done. What about afterwards? Uh, anywhere particularly obvious the, is the next place for transition? No. So I graduated, actually, and I wasn't really sure what exactly I wanted to do. My research at Stanford, interestingly enough, this is in 2005, my research was all around natural language processing, uh, which has now had a sort of resurgence. And in particular, my honor thesis at Stanford was about using natural language processing, in particular sentiment classification, to predict the stock market based off of news. And so I had actually built a program that would screen scrape Yahoo Finance, look at every news article, uh, look at the stock. If you know, in particular, I looked at any article that referred to exactly one company. Uh, I'm giving away a secret here, by the way. Looked at exactly one company, uh, looked at the news, classified the news as good or bad, and trained basically on whether it was good or bad news based off of articles that referred to one company that were published during during the market hours, and then looked at the stock an hour later. Uh, and basically, I was able to get this huge corpus of data, uh, screen scraped it, and trained a model to classify. Um, which actually did better than uh, over that period of time I was looking at, did better than the S&P 500. Uh, so I was pretty proud of that. So I decided to actually spend a year after I graduated building a business uh, around this. Uh, really didn't know what I was doing. I think the biggest mistake I made was I didn't have a co-founder. I was just kind of on my own, um, very much uh, what I saw later at Google, uh, very much uh, building kind of in a silo. It's kind of this ivory tower academic mindset, which is now very much the opposite of my approach to building products. So I learned a lot of lessons um, about how not to build a startup. And ultimately, after about a year of, uh, of doing that, I decided to join Google as an associate product manager. They had this associate product management program, started by Marissa Meyer. And uh, my hope going into that was to learn the skills that would make me successful as an entrepreneur. Um, you know, I didn't quite get that experience, but I did learn some amazing things, met some great people after two years. Okay, so you've gone to, you've gone to Google. You've tried your, your hand at your own startup, but not quite taking it further at that point. Any big steps, any big moments that really marked you on your journey? You know, I'm talking before you started Optimizely. Anything big or important worth sharing? Yeah, when I was at Google, it was the, my second year there, 2007, and a speaker by the name of Barack Obama was coming to the Google campus. He was then a senator. He was third in the polls behind Hillary Clinton and John Edwards. And I thought I knew this little secret. This guy, Obama, was pretty interesting. So I came to the auditorium where he was about to give a talk. And I was uh, by far uh, not the only one who knew about him. The line was incredibly long. There was no chance of me getting in if I had waited in line. So I actually snuck around back. This is Charlie's Cafe, the main big auditorium at Google. I snuck around back and uh, tried to sneak in to go see him speak. And the Secret Service was blocking the, the entrances. Uh, and so um, I, I used my best poker face and I told the Secret Service 
uh, hey, actually, I have a meeting in that room. And I pointed to a room kind of far in the distance. And the you know Secret Service, who didn't really know how things were laid out, said, all right, go ahead, go ahead. So I snuck past him. Uh, I sort of hid behind all the cameras uh, when they're there uh, recording him. And, uh, and Barack Obama gave an hour-long talk that, that really changed my life. Uh, he talked about how he wanted to take what we're doing at Google with evidence and science and feedback and bring that to the government. Uh, he talked about this new office, the CTO for the government. Uh, I remember he had this joke with Eric Schmidt who was interviewing him. Uh, Eric Schmidt asked him, it was like one of the opening things, Eric Schmidt asked Barack Obama, you know, uh, here at Google, we have very high uh, standards when it comes to interviewing. You're kind of, you know, running to become president, which is kind of an extended job interview. So let me ask you a question. So Eric Schmidt asked Barack Obama, how would you sort a million 32-bit integers? And, you know, the, the audience laughs and is like, ah, that's a funny joke. And then Barack Obama, completely deadpan, turns to Eric Schmidt and says, well, the bubble sort would be the wrong way to go. And uh, the, the nerdgasms were audible. Like everyone was just like incredibly in awe of him. It was obviously a planned joke, but uh, you know, he definitely knew how to, uh, how to pander to an audience. Uh, I don't, if you watch the recording of this, I don't think you can quite hear how, how excited people were to hear him um, you know, indulge in some, uh, some sorting algorithms. Uh, but uh, the last thing he said actually when he came was, I want you to be involved, uh, which usually for a politician is kind of corporate doublespeak for send me some donations. Um, you know, this was a relatively rich Google audience. But I took him literally. Um, I actually decided in that moment uh, to join his campaign. Uh, two weeks later, I flew to Chicago. You know, I, I grew up in, you know, as I said, Palo Alto, Stanford, Mountain View. So going out to Chicago in the dead of winter was not something I had done before. And I joined his campaign as a volunteer. That eventually turned into a job as the director of analytics, uh, which then ultimately inspired me to start my first company, Optimizely. That is incredible. If there's a lesson to learn from this, always lie. <laughs> yes, always lie. My life would have been quite different had I not lied. So it's hard to uh, it's hard to know whether I did the right thing. I think in hindsight, I probably did. What would you take from that uh, that lesson and that experience, genuinely as a parent? Like, how do you translate what happened in your life and the amazing opportunity it led to? But actually, it's based almost counterculturally on values that you would instill in your children not to have. It's, it's an interesting one, right? Yeah, I think the biggest lesson I took from that, thinking back on my experience joining the campaign was that there's certain times in my life, and I'm sure in everyone's life, where you feel like you have a calling. You have something that's pulling you to do something, and you may not even know why. You know, in this moment, I had this calling that I just wanted, you know, even if he'd lost, you know, I would have been happy to have had the experience of helping a candidate who I really believed in. And I had no, no aspirations to be in politics. I didn't know anything about politics. I joined the campaign not knowing at all what people were doing. So it wasn't so much like I had a, had a direct goal. You know, I didn't even want to be part of the administration afterwards. I just wanted to help him win. And when you feel that, there are a hundred people who will talk you out of it. You know, I, there were people at Google actually very seriously trying to talk me out of it. Um, and my dad tried to talk me out of it. He didn't think there's a chance he could win. And so um, in those moments, I think it's probably the lesson is to, to really listen to your, uh, to, your, to your instincts, to your gut. Uh, I would have far more regretted, you know, the way to think about it is kind of how Jeff Bezos thinks about regret. You know, he, he calls it the regret minimization framework. What would you regret more? You know, staying at Google, not actually joining the campaign, and maybe he loses, maybe he wins, you know, would you have regretted that path staying at Google or joining the campaign? And maybe he loses, maybe he wins, what would you have regretted leaving Google? And in that lens, like by far, the, the, the path I would have regretted more was not joining the campaign. Having this moment in time to feel this enlistment, this call of arms uh, and not taking it, would I, I would have looked back and say, boy, I could have had a chance to be part of something special. 
I'm always really fascinated, you know, what the decisions people make. You know, you talk about regret minimization framework. It's a great example of a decision framework, right? Which doors can you walk through and walk back out and there's hardly any damage done? And which ones are you just like all in and committing to? Obviously, with this one in your life, uh, it's a period of your life. It's a couple of years. But yeah, you would regret it because this is like the moment for someone like him and that campaign. And so it's a shame not to. But it's interesting because you, uh, you're referring really to a gut instinct that drove you to say, like, this is the right thing for me and the right place for me. Did your mind try and talk you out of it at all? Were you sort of like rationalizing, ah, but I'm at Google, we're paid a lot. Like, what am I doing? How was that conversation? No, my, both my, every bone in my body, my head, my heart said it was the right thing to do. You know, a lot of people who tried to convince me to not leave all had their own vested interest in me staying. Um, you know, and, and so when you look at it from their point of view, obviously it's in their best interest. And so that made it actually really easy. You know, it, it was hard because I'm, 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 you know, I, I actually, you know, I, I have this character defect where I, I use my ears in proportion to my mouth. I, I try to listen. I try to take in feedback. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty highly influenceable by people's point of view if they have a strong argument. But here all of the arguments were about why it was good for Google, why it was good for them that I stayed, not... Um, you know, necessarily bad for me. And, you know, the truth is like people say, oh, how could you leave this amazing job at Google? Well, even if he had lost or won, they would have taken me back. You know, I, even now, if I went back to Google, I'm sure, uh, you know, I would be some middle manager in product management, you know, like, so it really wasn't that big a risk. A lot of people say, well, leaving this, you know, amazing job is a big risk. But uh, at least at that time, Google was always hiring. It was 4,000 people at the time. I would have probably been someone in the, in the next 100,000 they hired. So uh, the risk wasn't actually as, as bad as, as people were claiming. So I think there it's less about sort of internal cognitive dissonance, more about, you know, being willing to not be liked, willing to let people down too. You know, at the time I was a product manager, I was one of the first product managers on Chrome. Uh, we hadn't launched yet. This was like pre-private beta. We had launched internally at Google, but, um, you know, they, they were marching toward launch and me leaving was, was going to have a negative impact. So I do regret that. I feel bad that, you know, the team was counting on me to be there. It turned out it did well. So uh, it's not like it, it, my, my, my being there would have made a difference, but that's that's the part that I think people need to have conviction in is, is being willing to be not liked in the moment to do the thing that's right for you. I think that's great advice in general. And it is really hard. Some people find it very easy to be that person. But anyone, you know, I'm a people pleaser, um, naturally, and people pleasers are very bad at that. And then actually, after a while, you sort of look back on some of your decisions, you have resentment to other people, which is kind of stupid. Like the only person you should be resenting is yourself. And like the fact that you didn't put yourself first, it's no one else's fault. Everyone is going around the world trying to get their agendas like higher up than other people's agendas. That's how the world works. You've just kind of got to protect your own intuition and your own interests and be brave enough to make those choices for yourself when they come around. So a couple of years then working for Obama directly, what makes you leave? Or is it job done? Time to move on to something new. Yeah, there's this there's this amazing thing that happens at political campaigns, which is an end date. Everyone gets fired when the election is over, uh, which is really interesting because it changes how everyone thinks about their job. You know, oftentimes you work at a company, if you're trying to be data-driven, you think about lifetime value of a customer, lifetime value, all that. We actually had this concept, uh, campaign time value. And like our incentives and our behaviors change as we get closer and closer to the election. You know, we'd be much more willing to spam people on our email list and get them to actually, you know, show up and actually, you know, do the things that we're actually meaningfully going to help. So, right, because you're burning um, it all at the end anyway. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And what was interesting is be, not only did we make decisions that way if we were being data-driven, but to our bodies. I mean, like the human body can only really withstand one presidential campaign. It was brutal. I mean, we were working, you know, 7 a.m. to 2 a.m. every day, 
eating horribly, you know, deep dish pizza in Chicago, beers at the office at night, every day of the week. Like, no, I mean, it was incredibly brutal. I don't know how any, looking back, I don't know how we did it. Um, and then by the end, you're just burnt out. Like, you just don't want to do anything. Like, I remember after the campaign, the one promise I made to myself was I'm never going to do anything analytics related again. Just nothing to do with analytics, um, which uh, which is funny given that my next successful company was Optimizely. I actually, after I left the campaign, I, I, I came back to this dream of being an entrepreneur and I convinced uh, another um, associate product manager from Google, Pete Kuman, uh, convinced him to, to, to leave his job and uh, they also tried to convince him to stay. Uh, and, uh, and we teamed up and we started our first failed startup together called Carrot Sticks. And we, we did the classic mistake of deciding we wanted to start a company and then figuring out what the company should do. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a classic mistake because almost always you come up with a bad idea if you do it that way. Uh, and this idea, we had, we had brainstormed, we had whiteboarded, all kinds of different startup ideas. We just knew we wanted to do a startup. And we landed on this, but the challenge was, and so Carrot Six was an online math game for kids. We weren't parents at the time, we weren't kids, and we weren't teachers. So we weren't any of the three constituents for whom we were building, so we had so little intuition for what mattered, what didn't. And, and uh, so yeah, that was our first failed startup experience. Um, yeah, and you weren't carrots either. So I mean, you just like, no experience. <laughs> that's right, that's right, yeah. Well, what happened? So we did that for about uh, nine months, and we started to realize, in fact, it was one of the first VC meetings we went to. Uh, we went into the meeting, very excited. We're these hotshot Google APMs. Uh, they're just going to give us tons of money. Came in, super, came in super overconfident. And at one point, one of the general partners in our pitch asked us, so how are you going to get distribution? And I remember thinking to myself, what does that word mean? Uh, what does he mean by distribution? And I had, you know, in hindsight, what had happened was my co-founder and I both had come from Google. At Google, distribution is really easy. You build a good product, you put the word Google in front of it, a couple hundred thousand people use it, they like it, they'll tell other people, and now a couple million users, a couple tens of millions. That's how Chrome happened. I mean, Chrome, we didn't really think about marketing or distribution. We just built a product that is from Google, and if it was good, people would use it and grow. So, like, you never learned how to actually get users. Uh, and so uh, we we didn't know, and that's what we struggled most with with Carrot Six. And so we pivoted actually to an idea that was helping startups get distribution. Uh, we were like, oh, we have our own problem. The problem is distribution on our first startup. The next startup we came up with was called Spreadly, and the idea was incentivized cause marketing. Like if we did have, we did the, the crazy thing about Carrot Six, we had fanatical happy users but we weren't growing. Like each of the users of our product loved it, but what we want to do is incentivize them to tell other people to come use it. So we built this product. Uh, we did that for a few months and then very quickly realized that the social capital necessary to spam your friends was almost always going to be greater than any kind of incentive or discount or donation the company could offer to incentivize you to do it. So the model just didn't work. Um, but the good news is we got into Y Combinator with that idea. And the other big insight, I mean, now in hindsight, these are so simple ideas, but the big insight we got from using, from building Spreadly compared to Carrot Six. In Carrot Six, we weren't parents, teachers, or kids. In Spreadly, we were building for ourselves. We were building the product we wish we had in Carrot Six to get us distribution. So that aha led me to think, wow, what are other problems that I wish I had solutions for? And then I went back to the Obama campaign. What's a problem I wish I had a solution for? And that's where our optimizing came from. It's the product I wish we had on the Obama campaign to make it easy for anyone to do A-B testing. And instantly everything became easier. Once you were your own customer and had a deep intuition for the challenges, the problems, you'd use the existing competitive solutions, 
immediately I saw the path forward. You know, there's all these things I knew we didn't need to do that didn't matter. Uh, you know, our focus on, you know, real-time results, just as we didn't even have multivariate testing for a long time, just simple A-B testing, a series of A-B tests. Uh, no, no engineers required. It could be, you know, we described it as the mere marketing mortal could do it all on their own. So all of these insights came from the experience. I wouldn't even call it the empathy of, of being the user, but the experience, the firsthand experience of the pain. Um, that made it much easier. And I give Paul, Paul Graham a ton of credit about three weeks into Y Combinator. We're still deciding, do we do Spreadly or not? I built over the weekend a prototype for Optimizely. Uh, I showed it to him at one of the Tuesday dinners and he just said, forget the other idea, do this. This is A-B testing for marketers. Um, and, uh, and ever since then, um, or that's, that's what sort of took, uh, took us onto the journey that became Optimizely. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Yeah, and actually, in 2013, I started my entrepreneurship journey properly. I started a company called Grabble. You know, after a year, year and a half, we pivoted the whole thing into an app. However, that first year when it was uh, web, I, a mere marketing mortal, I mean, not even, that would be polite. And I just lived on Optimizely. I came across you on Twitter doing your very interesting approach for marketing your latest funding round for Rewind. And I loved the way that you were doing uh, the marketing of this. And I was like, oh, well, check out this guy. Oh, Optimizely. And, you know, Optimizely actually holds a emotional place in my heart, which I think is interesting because when you say A-B testing to our listener, that's dry. And actually, most listeners might not even know what it is. So I will ask you to explain in a moment what A-B testing even means if you're not in tech. I actually found it to be... Yeah, like an emotional uh, product because it really helped you very quickly not waste lots of money. 
And obviously money is an emotional thing. So it wasn't like the product, so to speak. It's just that the things that it was enabling you to just back to decisions, helping you make the right decision each time. And also not spending an inordinate amount of time like getting cocky with your assumptions. To other mere mortals, can you just explain what A-B testing is and actually like how that has such a big impact, that business on your personal life and the startup ecosystem? Yeah, you know, A-B testing is the basic idea of creating a few variations of some content, an idea, a tagline, an image, and putting it out in the real world at the same time. So it's called A-B testing. It's actually A, B, C, D. You can put as many variations as you want. You show a ran, you ran, when somebody comes to a website, you randomly show them one of the variations and you measure what that user does. Ideally, they convert, they turn into a customer, they click add to cart, they click an ad, whatever your goals are on your website. Um, this can be true also, you know, not just on websites, but people, you know, famously A-B tests in, in any, any really form of marketing. And the whole goal of A-B testing is to learn what works, to get insights. Uh, it's to treat marketing as a scientific endeavor where you have a hypothesis. That hypothesis is that for you know that this tagline will have a higher percentage of people that convert compared to another tagline, uh, and then you go out and measure it. Uh, and the nice thing about that approach is it gets rid of the subjective nature of endless debate and decision fatigue. You're sitting in a room debating, oh, what should it be this, that, or the other. You just try it. If you have enough users, you put it out there, you see what works. Uh, most people don't remember which variation they're in anyway. And through this process of experimentation, little by little, you can try, you know, you can build something really great. You can learn, you get more insights about your users. Uh, you can learn what resonates, what doesn't. And that's the idea that we try to democratize really with, with, uh, with Optimizely. Before Optimizely, you, e you either needed a developer or you need to pay for expensive professional services to do this. Uh, we really democratize this superpower of science uh, and just bringing that to marketing. So how did it go? It went well. You know, we grew very quickly. Uh, we we tapped into, as I said, um, you know, having had this problem myself as a user. Uh, it turns out I was not the only one who had experienced this challenge. That's one of the biggest benefits. You know, you know, when you build for yourself, you know, at least one person wants what you want. You, uh, you don't know for sure that other people do, but if you're working on a big enough problem, that that tends to be the, the case as well. And uh, it really took off. I mean, we grew incredibly quickly. Uh, in the first few years, um, eventually grew to about $120 million in annual recurring revenue, 450 employees um, used by you know, companies all around the world. Almost every major website was using it. And um, then we ultimately decided to sell the company. Uh, so it's still um, still out there. Uh, it's currently, uh, it's been combined with a content management system. They, they liked the name Optimizely so much that they named the whole umbrella company Optimizely. Uh, so now there's, you know, some 1,200 people working at this company Optimizely that uh, that was something I started back in 2010. Um, and I'm really proud of it. You know, it's, it's amazing to hear stories like your own where you've had that experience of using Optimizely. It, it gives me uh, so much gratification and, and satisfaction to see um, that how this little idea could become so ubiquitous over time. Actually, one of the hardest things that we learn when we speak to so many different entrepreneurs, you know, the letting go part can be quite difficult because the sort of brand sort of dies and gets swelled up into the bigger thing. And for you, it's actually going to be the complete opposite. The legacy of it is only going to grow and grow and keep and be maintained. So I guess I'm just curious, does that have some kind of emotional pride linked to it or do you just never consider it? Uh, it, it does, but I'll tell you, it's also really strange, you know, because I don't really know that many people at Optimizely now, and it feels kind of like, it, it's almost like a, an estranged child. You know, I, it once was my entire identity, my entire life. I knew everyone. I interviewed the first hundred people who work there. 
Um, and now to see it live on, I'm certainly proud of it and proud of what it's doing. Uh, we are now customers of Optimizely here at Rewind, uh, so I'm very happy uh, to see where it's gotten. But it does feel weird to now have this, you know, this child that's kind of off to its own. It's gra graduated. It's it's living its own life, and uh, I hope it calls every once in a while. But uh, you know, one day maybe it goes public. Who knows? Uh, right now, uh, you know, uh, you know, to, I, I won't say it's entirely pride. It's a little bittersweet. And how did you leave? Like, was there a process for you? Yeah, well, I, we sold the company, so that was one way. Uh, I had actually, you know, as we were marching towards selling the company, uh, I had started Rewind, actually, um, and, but at the time it was called Scribe, uh, but it's the same company, uh, because I draw, I was drawn to this problem, um, and I, I you know, felt like with the grass is greener, that was hard for me to kind of stay at Optimizely with this idea that I was so obsessed with to pursue. And, you know, and, and I'll be honest, that the last few years at Optimizely, weren't that great. You know, I felt uh, even though the company was doing well, you know, we weren't what was in the early days. You know, we were kind of mature, big company. Um, every every quarter uh, was kind of a grind. And I kind of fell out of love with the idea. You know, we had sort of achieved what we had wanted to achieve, which was democratizing A-B testing. And I didn't have the foresight to think about what's next for me at Optimizely, you know, what's going to get me excited to want to be here in 10 years. And so at the you know combination of you know the the company was kind of starting to slow down uh, I was you know less excited about I, I sort of you know achieved what I had set out to achieve and you know the grass is greener with this new idea made it very hard for me to stay so um, so that's why I ultimately decided to start uh, what turned into rewind uh, you know the last year I was at, at Optimizely. But what is it like as an entrepreneur to have gone through that kind of journey and then, whether or not you're motivated by money or not, having money, it changes not just you, but certainly um, how other people perceive you. How has your way that you think about your life as a whole had to change since going through that transition as a human being? Yeah, go, going through the transition of a struggling entrepreneur to, to, to selling the company and, and, and making some money from it, um, has been quite a change for me. You know, I grew up relatively, I would say, lower middle class, probably one of the the poorer kids in my 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 public school, uh, and that gave me a sense of kind of yearning and and kind of jealousy or want seeing kids that you know, like we never owned our house growing up. You know, we were renting from you know house to house, and I'm kind of used to moving every year and a half. And uh, I remember uh, one of my friends were at their house, and they had a whole room just for their Nintendo. I was like, what the heck? You're like a Nintendo room. And I remember thinking to myself, why don't I have a Nintendo room? Like I'm, this isn't fair, you know? And so I got a sense of sort of drive and desire and maybe some hedonic treadmill from that. That's probably not healthy, but I appreciate that childhood because it gave me sort of motivation and drive to try to achieve. Um, now that I've achieved and, and been successful, uh, that hasn't gone away for me, but I do worry about the impact it'll have on my kids. Uh, you know, I have three kids, five, three, and one, and I want to make sure they grow up you know, also finding something they're passionate about and drive. Uh, I don't want them to feel like, you know, that, that they can go through life. I, I think they'd be dissatisfied and unhappy if they didn't go through life with some kind of drive or desire. Because one of the greatest accomplishments, you know, besides the money from selling the company is the sense of impact of like creating something out of nothing. That truly is so much more gratifying than um, the financial outcome. And, and I, I hope my kids have that also one day when they grow up. And, you know, at the end of the day, where's Mr. Nintendo man now? Probably not, <laughs> as, not as impressive. Not as impressive anymore. Yeah, yeah. Not as impressive anymore, buddy. Okay, so 
I'm really interested in the story of Rewind. Like I say, I came across Rewind sort of serendipitously on Twitter. Love the idea, love the concept, love your approach with it. And then I started reading a little bit about your why. And it's really captivating and it's emotional, right? And I think it's, it's really important to share that, as I'm sure you're going to. But I want to just take a moment to like juxtapose this. Like how different a moment in your life to have a real experience that creates a moment why your product needs to exist in the world, which is very similar to how, what happened to me when I was building my my latest company, Heights, versus the one I talked about earlier, Grabble. I did it, which failed, did a very similar thing to you, which was start a business because I want to start a business. And it's just not the same. And so I think it's really important to hear how you personally have gone on that journey of entrepreneurship from just starting something for the sake of it, I want to be an entrepreneur, shit it failed, to when there's real purpose behind a business. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I would describe it kind of three classes of, of why to start a business. I think the first and worst was the one I had with my first failed company, which was, I just want to start a company. Let, I don't know what it does. I just want to be an entrepreneur. And you sit on a whiteboard and try to figure out what you want to do. You know, that that failed for a lot of reasons, primarily because I had no empathy for the problem. I didn't really know how to focus. That was carrot six. The second is my my first real successful company, Optimizely, was I had firsthand experience with the problem. Uh, I was building for myself. I had tons of intuition around what mattered, what didn't. Uh, I knew at least one person, me, had that problem. So it's not like we're just inventing a problem. Um, and so that was incredibly gratifying and satisfying uh, for a few years. Uh, but what I'm trying to do with my latest company is achieve sort of this third level of kind of the way to think about building a company, which is a calling. It's it's the thing that you would do even if you knew it would fail. Uh, it's the thing you would do uh, even if, uh, you know, you, you had so many other options to do anything else. Uh, it, it's just, you just can't not do it. Uh, and that experience for me and then how I got to that clarity for what I'm working on started in my 20s as I started to go deaf. Um, I have a genetic condition that caused me to lose my hearing uh, at a young age. And finally, when I turned 30, I tried a hearing aid. And it was magical. You know, to lose a sense and gain it back again feels like gaining a superpower. And ever since that moment, I have been on a hunt for ways that technology can augment human capabilities and give us superpowers. You know, that's our vision. Our vision is to give humans superpowers. Uh, we do that using technology to augment our, our natural uh, capabilities. Um, but we think that there's so much more that we can do. You know, I saw this, you know, when, when I lost my hearing, the biggest thing I got out of that wasn't getting it back. That was magical. To get it back alone would have been magical. But is that combined with the realization of how bad it had gotten? You know, you don't really, you go through life every day not realizing your own limitations until you've had these aha moments that shows you how life could be. Uh, and that's what we want to do with Rewind. We want to do, you know, we want to be the equivalent of what a hearing aid is for hearing or glasses are for vision. We want to be the same for your mind, for your memory. We want to give you those superpowers that once you have them, you think to yourself, how can I go a day without this? And, um, and so that's, that's what I'm passionate about. You know, I started this idea and this company really trying to focus on a problem that I would want to do in 10, 20, 30 years. I want this to be my life's work. Uh, and I think that's hopefully where you know, the most impact can come from is an idea that you're so obsessed with that you do it even if you knew it failed. And I think one of the really interesting things that drew me to you is your narrative on Twitter around your fundraise, which was, actually, you know what? Why am I describing it? You describe it because it's awesome. So we're lucky that we, we raised uh, money early on and our first seed round was led by Andreessen Horowitz. We had plenty of money in the bank. 
And we happened to have stumbled upon this idea that people were really excited about uh, in AI. So we were getting inundated by investors. Uh, we were getting you know tons of inbound interest. We didn't really need the capital. And the d- thought dawned on us that, well, you know, we've built a product and a company that we're really proud of. We don't think there's really that much of a competitive risk. There's no, you know, it's, it's just a lot of hard execution. And so the thought we considered was, why not just make our pitch public? Why not put out our investor deck, you know, seven minutes, uh, me talking direct to camera, just like I would to an investor. And, you know, A, save a lot of time having to meet with a lot of investors who are interested. More importantly, really build trust. You know, our product really lives and, and, and dies on the trust of our customers. Uh, we, we capture everything you see saying here and we, we sort of locally. Um, and so for a product like ours, it's really important that users trust us. And so I thought, well, just put it out there. You know, transparency is the best way to build trust. And then surprisingly, it actually took off. You know, I, I actually, my biggest concern is we put it out there and it would be kind of a, no one's interested is kind of a flop, but you know, now we're up to almost 2 million views on Twitter. Uh, we had thousands of people reach out to invest. We just raised our Series A at a $350 million post-money valuation, which you know, in, in, this, in this economy, uh, in this market, is, uh, is kind of unheard of. So uh, it, yeah, it turned out to be a huge win, but uh, it all started kind of with this desire to build trust in us uh, by our, our customers and our users. I do remember there was a part in your tweet storm around this where you, know, you had offers where you would have been a unicorn. And that aspect and i can imagine it because i know how this stuff works in a hype cycle you know you have a 16 z or anderson horowitz already on board that's a massive signal you're the founder of optimizely that's a massive signal fucking hell this is ai talk about a trend that is a massive signal so of course you could be a unicorn out the gates if you wanted to however it would have come with a different time horizon for those kind of funds and a different pressure on you i think potentially the difference between yourself and another founder is when you say i want this to be a multi-decade journey you mean it therefore it's easy to say no to things that might have a higher valuation they're better for the ego in the short term and they'd have made an even more viral tweet however um in the grand scheme of things they they don't actually help align you with where you need to go over the long term and i think it's a really valuable lesson you know there's a big trade-off that happens with the short-term PR cycle of how exciting it is to have an amazing round. And even in businesses you love, like the day-to-day, as you know, as an entrepreneur who's been doing this for so long as well, some days just suck. If you love what you do and you know where your North Star is and it's going to go on for long enough, you find really good motivation anyway to carry on. You've kind of just absolved yourself from having any of those practical external pressures so that you can hold completely true the vision as you see it. And that's actually a privilege, Probably worth saying, you know, something that, you know, a successful repeat founder is more likely to be able to negotiate in the first place. But what I found really motivating and interesting, other than the fact that it was counterculture narrative, which I really liked, is that you found funds who are like, happy to be on that journey over a long time. That feels rare. I don't know if it's rare, but I f- it feels rare. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, it, it certainly is rooted in my experience with my first company and realizing, you know, we, I, my first company, Optimizely, we raised our Series A from Benchmark, great fanfare, huge valuation for a Series A, $28 million raise, uh, our Series B, $57 million from Andreessen Horowitz. So like, I felt the feeling you feel when you raise this big mecha epic round. 
And then that feels great in the moment. And then the day after happens. And then you say to yourself, oh my gosh, why did I raise all this money? Most of which I don't need. At a valuation that's insane given um, you know, where we are. And it wasn't so much about the expectations. Um, it was more around the sort of natural byproduct of, uh, of going down that path. You know, for both my A and B at my last company, we raised way more than we needed. It wasn't like some, you know, I see a lot of investor presentations now that are like, here's our budget and like, here's how much we need. And like, this is a, like, it was not at all that. It was like, these investors all wanted ownership percentage. It was competitive. Like this was the dollar that came out of the highest valuation or some market valuation times, you know, their desired ownership percentage. It wasn't at all bottoms up like the budget-based approach. And so what the, the problem was, raising all that money would not in and of itself been a mistake. The biggest mistake we made, I've made now multiple times, is raising that money and then spending it. Uh, you know, it would have been fine to raise all that money in my last company, raise all the money here at Rewind, um, and and just, you know, buy T-bills. You know, interest rates are good. Uh, you know, there's no reason to go off and hire like crazy. Um, and so that was the biggest mistake I made in my last company is go off and hire um, because you can. And so, you know, I go now, I've learned that lesson the hard way. Today, our team is 18 people at Rewind. 18 of the most amazing individuals I've ever worked with in my life. We have incredibly high bar for hiring. We don't just fill seats. You know, we wait for the pain to feel, you know, real for a particular role. Then we fill that role. We don't just anticipate some theoretical pain. Uh, and I want to build, you know, the first uh, multi, you know, billion dollar public company with, you know, 50 or less people. You know, like you don't need, in the world today, you don't need a whole army of people, especially in our product where it's, you know, more consumer than it is B2B. Uh, people buy it. It's not sold to them. We don't have any salespeople at Rewind. So there's no reason for us to really grow off and build a huge army. So, um, you know, and the last point I'll make on valuation is, you know, we, we, you know, the valuation we think is really strong. There were people who offered us much higher valuations, but I feel like I'd much rather get an investor like NEA who has, you know, built into their mantra and, and their track record long-term orientation. Uh, you know, two examples of that are, you know, they have 15-year fund life cycles. Most traditional venture capitalists have 10-year fund life cycles, which means basically the expectation is you get a return in 10 years. And the second is, you know, NEA is known to buy at the IPO. You know, they bought at uh, the IPO for Cloudflare, one of the portfolio companies. They invest, in fact, every step along the way. Uh, so I want an investor who's not just looking at this as a quick flip transactional, you know, how do I get on paper uh, a big uptick in, in market value, but how do I partner with a founder for decades uh, to build something that could be one day as big or bigger than Apple or Google or uh, any of these other companies out there. And, and that's what I want to do. And so I was solving for that, not for the short-term euphoria of being called a unicorn. And just just remind me like succinctly then, how much did you raise at what valuation again? Uh, so we raised about $20 million at a $350 million valuation. Okay. And allow me as a customer of Rewind to explain to listeners what I found super valuable out of it. So first worth saying it works, as in it works what you're saying, because it's interesting enough for me to be like, I don't know, I got to spare 10 minutes. I'm willing to go in this rabbit hole to see if this bizarre promise of like a sort of what digital second brain, what does that really mean? There's so many versions of what a digital second brain is. I think one of the things that I've loved about it most of all is it lives up to the exact promise that you talk about a lot on social, which is it's like invisible. It, you're not doing anything. So it's weirdly, it's possible to download, rewind and use it and never even know that you're even using it. And it's so unintrusive that you almost have to remind yourself that it's value add. And where I've personally found it super useful is after a, I don't know, I don't actually know if it works after a podcast interview. I can't remember, but because I haven't tried to access it, but after my meetings, it always pops up 
and says, we've just recorded your meeting. Would you like the transcript? Or would you like to send an email of the notes? And I think that summer, like that simplicity of understanding my common user behavior of, yeah, a summary of my notes would be really helpful to email to the people that I've just had uh, a meeting with is a great example of one of the tactical activations of what Rewind's actually doing, right? Because what Rewind is actually doing is recording everything locally on your computer that you do at all time, anytime, ever. And whilst that sounds super untrustworthy and the kind of business you hope someone that lies to the uh, the CIA would never secret ever service, do. Secret service. Secret service. Sorry, even worse. My bad. My, my bad. Um, even less trustworthy. Yeah, well, that sounds terrifying. I'd love you to actually just address that straight on because uh, I, I actually know the answer to this because obviously, like a rational person, I was like, hold on a fucking second. There's no way I'm giving Rewind access to all of that. And it is just brilliant how you position the product, the execution, and the security risk all together to actually genuinely create a really brilliant customer experience. So inform us, what do you do that's so different there? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing that we do that that makes us unique is that, that we can, as you say, frictionlessly capture everything. So, you, you know, we want to be imperceptible in the sense that you don't, we don't hog system resources. Uh, we we want to enable you to be more present in everything you do from meetings to, um, you know, work and not feel the need to take notes to try to remember. If you think about it, the idea that today, you know, it's 2023, and you know, if we want to try to remember something better, we do this kind of crazy thing. We chop down a tree, we turn it into a rectangle called paper, we take a stick with ink at the end of it and write things down. And that's like our best idea on how to remember something better. Maybe there's some digital versions of that, but at the end of the day, it's like you taking something and trying to capture it manually. And we sort of flipped it on its head and said, well, what if, what if we just capture everything for you? And maybe you don't need the vast majority of it, but the moment that you want to go back to, hey, what did Dan say in that interview? Or what was that, you know, what was that thing I read on that website one time? Or what was that tweet I saw? Those moments when you're racking your brain trying to remember something, we, very much like an insurance policy, have it all for you. You know, you can go back and, and find those moments that you otherwise would be racking your brain trying to remember. And so, uh, so in order to deliver on that promise, Privacy is super important. So we've built a lot of things built in. So first of all, all like you said, all the recordings are stored locally. Uh, it, we do not have access to it as, as a company. Your employer doesn't have access to it. Only you have access to the recordings uh, that are stored locally on your machine. And uh, we encrypt it. Uh, we encrypt the database locally on your machine. Uh, and we allow you to basically go back and forth in time without worrying that there's some um, sort of nefarious person or system trying to uh, to get access to those recordings. And then on top of that, we built some really amazing things. We built an integration with GPT-4, uh, which also takes a very privacy-first uh, approach uh, where you know, if you do a search with GPT-4, only the question you ask in the specific text of the moments in your past relevant to that um, are, are used to generate a response. So you're able to synthesize, you, know, you can ask a very simple question that takes moments from any app you've read, seen for a long period of time, synthesize just the moments that you need into a coherent answer. You know, I give this example on our website of asking uh, Rewind to write me an email to Sam Altman asking to catch up. And our product takes the moments, you know, Sam Altman was, when our, was our first investor at, at Rewind. And uh, it takes our history together. You know, the fact that we were introduced by Paul Graham in 2010, uh, the fact that he's an investor in Rewind, uh, the fact that we just launched our GPT-4 integration, it takes all that together and synthesizes it into a beautiful email that is just ready to hit send. Um, so that's, you know, that's our approach. It's a bit weird. It's a bit different. Uh, I'll admit, sometimes you first blush, it's a little creepy. Uh, but as our users have shown, you know, they're willing to overcome that initial apprehension 
after having used it and seeing the magic of what it feels like to have perfect memory. Honestly, it's one of those products as well that um, I think it's a really interesting one to address around habits because it is a new habit that you have to start to try and use. And like all habits, if you don't keep it up or you're not finding enough exponential value sort of coming from it, you know, you start to find yourself using it less and less and then wondering, oh yeah, I forgot about that. So I guess my question to you is, other than, for example, the feature that pops up after you've had, uh, you know, a, a meeting, which is valuable, how are you approaching that sort of consumer psychology behavior? Because kind of the proposition is it's so invisible and unintrusive. That's kind of the beauty of it, but it can be also a built-in negative aspect to your own product, right? So you, you get in this kind of unusual paradox. Yeah, the way I think about it is that the the foundation of our product is insurance. It's the idea that even if you never file a claim, if you have you know homeowners insurance, you're not going to cancel it just because you didn't have a leaky faucet in the last year. Like it feels good. You get peace of mind knowing that you have what you might need backed up and recorded and captured for you in a privacy uh, first way. On top of that, you know the, there are then sort of the utilities, the things that actually are built or sort of ingrained into your workflow. You know, you're in a meeting, you're in back-to-back -back meetings, you're about to go from, you know, one set of contacts to the next. Wouldn't it be great if you had an email generated right in that moment, uh, summarizing and sharing with all the attendees? So like, that is an example of what you can build on top of that foundation, of that sort of insurance foundation. And so I don't see them really at odds with one another. Obviously, you know, the, the summarization capability, that's all optional. If you don't want to use it, that's fine. If you want to keep it running and use it for search, no problem. Uh, but because we have this amazing wealth of data that we can now help really be kind of a co-pilot for your mind, uh, we think we can now be a truly personalized AI. We can take the things that you're going to do your day-to-day, -day, use the context of your past to help inform your future. And uh, those are the kinds of features that we're, we're actively working on. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense to me. What are your three favorite books that you think people should read or, you know, ones that have just influenced your life? Uh, I've had two books that have really changed the course of my life. The first was Homo Deus by Yuval Noah Harari. Uh, and reading that book made me realize just how much biomass exists on this planet purely for the their taste. You know, some, some order of hundreds of billions of, of chickens and, and huge amount of cows. And after reading this book, I had this thought that ran through my head. Uh, this was even before I had kids. And the thought was, would my grandkids come to me one day and say, Grandpa, did you all just like create a lot of animals and then have them live horrible, miserable, suffering lives, kill them, and then eat a small part of it just because it tasted good. And I thought to myself, yeah, that's kind of what we did. And it just made me feel really um, uneasy about the suffering of animals. And after reading the book, I became a vegetarian. So that was one big major life change. Uh, the other one was a book that I heard first by um, Nikki Glaser in an interview with Joe Rogan. Uh, the book was called, uh, it's by David Carr, so The Easy Way to Control Alcohol. And she said, uh, you know, she was, uh, she was an alcoholic and she said she read this book and uh, she, after reading it, she hadn't had a single drink of alcohol. And I couldn't believe, I thought that claim was too, too hard to believe. I, I wasn't really planning on stopping drinking alcohol, but I just wanted to prove her wrong. Uh, and so I, I read the book and uh, she was right. It sort of dismantled every, uh, every argument one could make for why you'd want to drink alcohol and uh, sort of showed how a lot of societal conceptions cause us to think certain things about how alcohol can uh, be a social lubricant when it's really not and how it can actually make you happy when it really can't. And a lot of the things that I had sort of grown up thinking and, um, and I also ever since reading that book stopped drinking. So there are things I do for my kids I would never do for myself. 
And I remember about actually around a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, my oldest son, who at the time was three or four, you know, he was going to sleep. It was a little bit of a quiet time. And he turned to me and he said, Daddy, are you going to die? And it kind of surprised me, took me back. And I responded, uh, oh, you know, I, I, I will, but only, only sick people die. Uh, and then he, that sort of calmed him down. And he said, okay, well, Daddy, but you're really healthy, right, Daddy? And I, I looked at him and said, yeah, no, I'm, I'm really healthy. But then the huge pang of guilt fell on me because I really wasn't healthy. You know, I wasn't really exercising much. I was pretty sedentary. You know, I was drinking at the time. And that really turned my perspective. You know, the thought of my, you know, I'm not, I'm not anytime hopefully going to die, but the thought of my son growing up without a father and the disappointment of in his eyes and the sort of hope and yearning he had forced me, you know, since then I've been walking eight miles on my treadmill every day, been not drinking and just, you know, that, that catalyst from, you know, doing something for your kids that you wouldn't do for yourself was really important for me. Totally. And I lost my father at 24 from like poor health and 24, I was still, you know, an adult, but you know, at the end of the day, it was from poor health. And I, as a result from that, just became very conscious of my health. And it seems like a shame, right? So it seems a shame for that to be the catalyst. So it's awesome to yeah. hear that the general awareness that people have is making a difference in society. It's awesome. And great entrepreneurs like yourself, you know, you're going to perform better over a long time and make more of an impact in the world with better health. Like if you can't be the CEO of your body, you basically can't really deserve to be a great CEO of your company. First yeah, and foremost, right? Yeah. 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 And I definitely see how, you know, taking control and over your body and, 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 and doing the things, building the habits there, any, any habit you build translates from personal life to, to family life, to, to work life. And, you know, I feel like as you get better at building those habits, those healthier habits, you can start doing the same in work and, and it translates, you know, it's, it's not like an, it's not a, a trade-off. It's really a yes. And between those two parts of your life. hundred percent. I know that you also have this mind emulation foundation. And at some point, I'm going to just sound like a total Twitter creep, but very fascinated in all things brain. So that's kind of how, how I got there. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so the Mind Emulation Foundation's vision is to fund and conduct research to help further the idea of taking what makes you, you, and emulating it digitally. You know, I'm a big believer, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of, there's a whole field of philosophy on this, but I, I'm a believer that what makes you, you is somewhere in and around where you are physically. It's likely an emergent property of your body. Uh, we typically call that the mind. There are people who are dualists who believe in the spirit and sort of things outside their physical body. Um, I, I tend to, to believe that, you know, science shows that most of what makes you, you is over where you are physically. And uh, the idea is that if we can emulate it in the sense that we take all of the constituent parts of what makes you, you, and replicate it uh, sufficiently well, then that emulation is just as much you as you are when you wake up in the morning after having slept overnight. You know, millions of your cells uh, die every second. Uh, your body transforms constantly. Your mind today is not the mind it was when you were a kid. And, um, you know, and I don't know if you know the, the, the philosophy uh, story of the ship of Theseus, uh, but the, the basic idea behind the ship of Theseus is that, you know, there's this famous, I think it was a Greek ship. Uh, it was uh, uh, docked in the harbor after winning some big battle. And over time, as it was in the harbor, the water was wearing away at the planks. And so slowly the people who wanted to maintain and restore the ship would replace each plank one by one uh, and uh, to make sure that the ship, you know, stayed and looked the same as it did when it first was docked. Eventually, all the planks are replaced. And, you know, you ask yourself, is that ship that was once there 
the same ship that it is there today if, if over time you gradually replace every, uh, every piece of wood. And I would argue if it has the same emergent properties, it is sufficiently enough the ship that you would uh, consider that ship. And similar with your mind, if you think about the paradox or the analogy, let's say in 10 years from now, uh, you know, Dan, we figure out, wow, it looks like your, your vision's not going well. And it turns out there's a part of your brain that your eyes are connected to that just don't, doesn't work quite well. So we're going to do this surgery. We're going to carve out just that part of your brain, replace it with a digital circuit that looks identical, works identically to the, the meat and biology of your brain as it is today, just a small part of your brain. You'll go in for surgery, you'll come out, you'll feel exactly the same. So now you just have this tiny little part of your brain replaced digitally. Now let's say a few months later you go in and have another part of your brain replaced, exactly one-for-one -one behavior. Eventually your entire brain or your entire nervous system is replaced gradually, this is called the gradual replacement theory of uh, mind evolution. you gradually replace everything. At what point along that journey did you lo lose becoming you or you are no longer you? And I would argue you, you're always you. You are the same you you were at the beginning and our vision is to do the same for, um, you know, for the mind. So it's a long journey, it's not easy. There's a lot of science, uh, even Google's actually doing some interesting stuff in connectomics. Uh, I funded uh, research at the Broad Institute um, and, and I think there's a lot of opportunity here to uh, further this goal. It's still in the sort of basic science stage, but um, I, and may, you know, maybe it doesn't happen in my lifetime, but you know, hopefully in my kids' lifetime, they'll have the choice to uh, you know, not just uh, believe that death is inevitable, but if they want to extend life indefinitely by emulating themselves non-biologically, then um, I hope they can. If you think about great stories of people in the world, they, the ones that we love the most are the ones of greatest transformation. The rags to riches is a great example. The people who start off poor and end their life poor and never change are not the ones we ever know about. The ones who actively seek out to change their life by essentially the process of neuroplasticity, some purposeful scientific manifestation, which we can just call grit and determination for, you know, the sake of a business audience, you know, that creates a real change in people's life, their circumstance, and they become different people. And I also often reflect on the fact that when you think of yourself as a child, you're not thinking of you as you. It feels like a separate person that you're referring to. When I was a kid, that little person feels like, well, certainly for me, when I'm thinking about that person, it feels like it's not me. I feel like I'm having a reflection of someone else entirely. And none of those things are actually that different to what you're referring to. Like fundamentally, it's all kind of a question of separation around the human experience. So Dan, what is your best piece of advice for founders that are looking to do something truly different, like unique, like Rewind? My best piece of advice, if you're trying to do something unique or different, like Rewind, is to find a problem you're so obsessed with that you can't not do it. You know, to do something that people think is impossible is hard. You know, people will tell you that it's impossible. Uh, people will convince you to do something else. And so you need at the most basic level, a deep passion and, um, you know, and drive that will get you through the naysayers, that will get you through uh, all the hundred people who convince you why what you're doing is a bad idea. Um, you need that deep, that's more important than anything else, better than an idea an investor invest in. Uh, is that deep conviction that what you want to see in the world uh, is possible and that you can bring it to life. And to take that further, you know, most things are super hard. You know, anything that you end up doing as a founder is really hard. So you might as well try and do something exceptionally hard so long as you're passionate at it. Exactly. Totally, totally agree. Dan, it's been a massive pleasure having you on Secret Leaders. Thank you so much for your time. It's been very inspiring. Thank you, Dan. It's been a pleasure to be part of it. 
Dan Soroka, who taught me a lot about following your own path, persistence, and not listening to those who doubt you. If you enjoyed this episode and found it useful, please write us a review and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. It makes a huge difference to us and we love reading every single review. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and we'll be back next week with more lessons for entrepreneurs and leaders. The episode was produced by Alex Graham, Ruth Edwards, and Sol Harris, and all brought together by our head of podcasts, Will Stolomon. See you next time.